Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. If you could stand, we'll begin in prayer. I'd like to welcome everyone here to St. Michael Parish. You know the day, right? All right. Indeed. And let's not forget Raphael and Gabriel as well. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. St. Michael, the Archangel, defend us in battle. Be our protection against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray. And do thou, O Prince of the Heavenly Hosts, by the power of God, cast into hell Satan and all the evil spirits who prowl about the world seeking the ruin of souls. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Thank you very much, Father Fimian. Please welcome back Dr. William Marshner. All right. I was asked in this series to go into the philosophical roots of modernism. Now, that unfortunately requires going into some areas that are a little hard to understand because events in the history of philosophy are often um, difficult matter and uh, a lot of this stuff is not widely taught. So forgive me if I have to trespass into some uh, odd areas here. I'm going to give you a quote from an important book published in 1971 up in Baltimore. There was a professor there at Hopkins named Morris Mandelbaum. He put out a wonderful history of 19th century thought. It's called History, Man, and Reason in the 19th century. It is fabulous. Here's what he says. It is my contention that during the period of 150 years, from let's say 1750 to 1900, or 1780 to 1930, however you want to count that. During that 150 years, there was a greater community of thought than is ordinarily suspected. And I would attribute that commonality to the impact of two connected but logically independent ideas. The first was historicism. He said he's going to define that term. And the second was a new conception of the relation between the nature of human beings and the conditions of their social existence. Conception which I shall call the malleability of man. Okay? Now let me put these two things up on the board. These are the themes that are common to that whole 150-year period from, say, 1780 to 1930. And uh, not everybody is coming at them from the same angle, but everybody's working on them, fiddling with them. All right. First of those themes was here, star, 
e sezom. And the second was the malleability of man. What is malleability? Yeah. A malleable thing can be hammered into any form you want. You all remember the Marxist propaganda about how the, the, the socialist society is going to form a new man. Yes. Yes. Malleability of man is a standard aspect of Marxism and uh, is not altogether forgotten on the left. I mean, after all, we're always being challenged to acquire a new consciousness, are we not? Yes. Historicism is not quite so easy to define, but basically it's the idea that human beings are totally engulfed in the flood of history so that nothing about us can really be understood except in historical terms. Mm -hmm. History is the most important avenue, says historicism, to the understanding and explanation of all human affairs. In other words, everything that turns up is a result of developments in the past. And what turns up at any given point will be the result of some law of development. That's the key word to keep in tandem with this fancy word historicism. The word is development. Okay. The idea was that history as a whole is some vast developmental change. A developmental change is always going in a definite direction. It's going towards a higher and nobler state of whatever is developing. So you got an element of progressivism here, an element of cultural optimism, and also an element of fatalism. Because if events in history correspond to a law of development, well, then they have to come, don't they? All right. Historicism and the malleability of man. In addition to these ideas, and often in opposition to them, there developed increasing doubt as to the purity and efficacy of human reason. Let me put that up here. Distrust or lack of loss of confidence uh, distrust of reason, loss of confidence in reason. Now, where that comes from, I will have to explain uh, in more detail later. But just for now, remember that the 19th century was the period that did the most to assert the importance of feeling and emotion. The 19th century romantics turned against the Enlightenment. Those people back in the 18th century Enlightenment were all cold reason, reason, reason. 
Now we have discovered that man has this emotional side to him and that the feelings may often be the root to a deeper knowledge of reality. Not for nothing is that 19th century idea in Star Wars. Reach out with your feelings, Luke. <laughs> uh, there it is. All right. <clears throat> now then, throughout this 150-year period, 1780 to 1930, there existed two and only two main streams of philosophical thought, each of which had a high degree of continuity, each of which tended to deal with these problems uh, from opposite points of view. These dominant and continuing movements, 1780 to 1930, were metaphysical idealism on the one side and positivism on the other. Let me put that up. On the one hand, you're going to have metaphysical idealists or idealism dealing with these themes. And on the other hand, you're going to have positivists, positivism dealing with these same themes. Now then, there's one more thing I want to mention as a general thing, a general theme in the 19th century that you can find uh, along with this stuff and on both sides of this great philosophical divide. That theme is a certain view of religion. Okay? Now, when this century began, the most influential point of view was that of Hegel, who said that art philosophy, science, and religion all have the same object. They're different ways of knowing the same reality. By the end of this period, everybody had moved on to a different position, namely, that religious truth is the object of a separate faculty. Okay? For Hegel, being religious was one way of exercising reason. Being artistic was another way. At the end of this period, it has devolved that religion is the exercise and object of a separate faculty, not the intellect. What faculty was that? You guessed it. Feeling. Uh-huh. Feeling. This idea that religion is essentially feeling based on feeling, a response to feeling, was brought into Protestant theology already in the 1820s by the fellow with the never-ending name of Schleiermacher. Friedrich Schleiermacher. I'm not going to put that on the board. That's too many letters. Part of this view, distinctive to the period, was that religious feeling is prior to and independent of all the propositions expounded by theology. 
The propositions in theology are like projections of the feelings. And the propositions are fruits which the feelings bear in various states of culture. So you put people with religious feelings in a platonic atmosphere of culture and they churn out dogmas about the incarnate word. Put them in an Aristotelian environment and they'll churn out dogmas about form and matter in the sacraments. I don't know what. The idea is that the feelings are always prior. And that means you can be truly religious once you no longer believe the propositions. See, they're all secondary. Just keep your feelings sharp, sensitive. Yeah. Keep your feelings good and sensitive, and you'll still be a believer even if you don't believe a single doctrine that the church teaches. And hence arises a point which I made to you last time, namely that in this period, the standard device was to say, religion is good, theology is bad. Theology was old, arrogant, scholastic stuff, but we, we like religion. Yeah. We don't like dogmas, but we like religion. Right. Now, there was a man at the end of the period named Emile Boutroux, Frenchman, of course, who has a very good statement of the position held in those days on science and religion. His book was called Science et Religion dans la Philosophie Contemporaine. Yeah. He said that what has emerged is a situation of radical dualism. Science and religion are no longer two expressions of one and the same object, such as divine reason. They are no longer two given truths between which you can demonstrate an agreement. They are no longer uh, subject to the same standard, like reason. No, no, no. Each of them, science and religion, is now viewed as absolute in its own way. They're distinct at every point. As um, the two faculties of the soul, the intellect and the will, are distinct. Or the intellect and feeling are distinct. Science corresponds to the intellect, religion to your capacity for feeling, emotion, and so on. Thanks to this mutual independence, science and religion could both reside side by side in one of the same mind and have no influence on each other. In fact, says Boutroux, by the end of the 19th century, science and religion had come to a kind of understanding, a pact, tacitly to abstain from scrutinizing one another's principles. Mutual respect 
And on that key account, each was to have security, liberty, and such was the device of the period. All right? Now then, that was a two-way, that was a two-edged sword. On the one hand, that meant that religion could not criticize anything being said in the sciences. Were the so-called sciences of ancient history or archaeology proving that the Bible was full of errors? You couldn't say anything. Were the scientists giving us uh, an atheistic account of the origin of the world? You couldn't say anything. Because we don't criticize their results and they don't criticize ours. It's like you would say, science and religion cannot be reconciled exactly because you don't reconcile astronomy and poetry. Huh? Didn't, um, oh, who's that awful fellow? Walt Whitman. <laughs> Didn't he write a poem, I Heard the Learned Astronomer? I remember that one. Well, he goes to a lecture and he's, he sits there for a while and the learned astronomer bores him after a while. And then he goes out and he looks up at the stars. And awe flows back into his soul. See, he goes from science to feeling. He goes from an intellectual consideration of the world to an aesthetic consideration. That's religion. And so they can't criticize one another. There's only one significant exception to this theme in the 19th century, and that's Marx. Marx is the only important 19th century thinker who said religion was bad. Isn't that interesting? Even though the century was chock full of atheists, they all said religion is good. All right. So much for these themes, put this one down here, dualism about science and religion, meaning a dualism such that never the twain shall meet. Okay? Now, you remember how it was in the Middle Ages. The schoolmen were intent on reconciling the science of the time, Aristotelian thought, with the data of divine revelation. They were after a coherent synthesis of faith and reason. But in the 19th century period, that hope has been given up. No synthesis. As I said, you can't synthesize astronomy and poetry. Okay. I'm now ready to talk about these two great, long-lasting philosophical traditions and what's peculiar about them, and a little bit of what they said about these common themes. To begin with, I have to tell you that these two movements, idealism on the one side, positivism on the other side, were both responses to one and the same philosopher, the eccentric of Königsberg the man who had devised a mechanical tool by a motor to raise and lower his socks. Eh? Yes. Well, anyway, his name was Immanuel Kant. K-A-N-T. 
both of these movements. Now you see, I have to be an absolute giant. Now well, maybe I can do it. K A N T. Immanuel Kant is behind both of these movements. Let me tell you a little bit about what he said and talk about how both movements spring out of his thought. All right. Kant's most famous work was done on the topic of human knowledge. How is knowledge possible? And his most famous book was called The Critique of Pure Reason. Published in 1781, it was quite a bestseller in its day. It was picked up and read all over Europe. I would say it was understood in very few places because it is one of the most unreadable books ever published. All right? Kant was no prose artist. Let's just leave it at that. It's very hard to read. But everybody saw it was deep. Oh, geez, deep. And so people tended to pick up the conclusions from it which they could understand. Now, what was Kant arguing in this book? We have always believed that our knowledge gets at reality. Whether we're doing it through science or some other avenue, we want our knowledge to get at reality, otherwise it's not knowledge, right? Kant said this was impossible. Because we can never reach the real as it is in itself. Our own minds are so structured with concepts native to the mind, we're not even conscious of them, our mind is so thick-set with concepts that work on the data of the senses like cookie cutters, that we can never experience anything except objects as our minds give them to us. Okay? Think of the mind as a cooker. You would like to get at reality in the raw. Well, says Kant, you can't. You will always get it cooked. Or here's another way to put it. The real itself would seem to be unstructured. We have no idea what its structures are. But imagine that the mind is a refrigerator full of ice cube trays. Each one an a priori conceptual mechanism. And as input comes in from the outside, the water comes in, the mental refrigerator keeps freezing it up into ice cubes. So all you will ever experience is ice cubes. And they are not reality in itself. All right, let me drop the metaphors for a minute and talk about some of the things that Kant said were not in the real, but projected by our minds. Okay? Number one, space. He thought space was not real. Space was a feature of our minds whereby we distributed things around, but things in themselves are not in space. He thought time wasn't real. 
So he didn't believe that real things in themselves occurred in succession. Time was rather an a priori structure imposed on the mind, by the mind, on things to order them. Now, obviously, as Kant presented it, reality of things in themselves is kind of unimaginable. They're not in space, they're not in time. Oh, it gets worse than that. Um, whenever you see a particular object, I hold up my sacred water cup. Uh, whenever you see a particular object like this, you think, oh, okay, that's a thing, the kind of thing we call a cup, and it's got certain accidents or properties like being white and uh, being relatively full of water. Okay. We tend to analyze everything we run into as a thing, a substance, having certain properties, right? Kant denied that that difference is in the real. That again is imposed by our minds. Things in themselves are not substances, they're not accidents. They don't fit any categories. Because all the categories are imposed by our thought. This is getting weirder and weirder, am I right? Okay. One last piece of weirdness. Let me ask you this. If I tip this cup all the way over, what's going to happen? It's going to spill on the floor, right? So my tipping will cause the water to spill, right? Right. You understand events in terms of causes and their effects. Right? Kant says cause and effect are not in the real. They are again categories imposed by our minds. Now he admits that cause and effect holds among things as we know them. In other words, our mind cooks things in such a way that some of them are causes and some are effects. Some are substances and some are accidents. But that's a result of the cooking, not of the real. Does everybody see? Okay. Now, Kant thought that because we could never get at reality as it is in itself, all of our thought has to be limited to the appearances of things as our senses and our minds give them to us. We cannot go beyond the empirical. Causation is a relation which holds only between empirical things. You cannot assert that a visible thing is caused by an invisible entity. Because an invisible entity is not a phenomenon, causality only holds between phenomena. Now look, every proof of the existence of God you have ever heard of, how does it work? You start with visible things, with change, motion, whatever, 
and you argue back to a first cause. Isn't that right? And the first cause is not something we observe in the world. You can't find God with a telescope. Right? We argue back to an invisible first cause. So what Kant was saying already with these moves, and he says it more clearly later in the book, there cannot be a rational proof of the existence of God. Cannot be. If you're talking about reason. Was Kant an atheist? You'd think so, but he wasn't. Not at all. He just thought that God could not be an object of speculative knowledge. He thought, however, that you had to believe in him if you wanted to live a good moral life. You had to posit somebody who would reward your virtues and punish your vices. Otherwise, you wouldn't have enough motive to be good. So he thought that God was a kind of a necessary postulate of practical reasoning. But not anything that could be studied or known theoretically. Okay. Before I get to these successors, I want to point out that even while Kant was still alive, there was a very prominent German thinker who tried to salvage something of Christianity from the ruins produced by Kant's philosophy. His name was Jacobi, J-A-K-O-B-I, Jacobi. He maintained that, okay, 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 Kant, I understand, we can't get at God by speculative reasoning, by cause and effect argument and so on, I grant that. But, said Jacobi, we can somehow intuit him. Yeah. The intellect can somehow directly intuit God. It's like you can reach out to him with your feelings, maybe. Or you just have some sort of non-rational or super-rational intuition of God. I'll just say one more thing about Kant. One of the permanent fixtures of modernism was a denial that God's existence could be proved. All traditional metaphysics was to go out the window. God can't be proved. Oh, but he could be loved. He could be felt, but not proved. All right? Now then, I go on to these two successor positions. I just explained to you how Kant said that our knowledge cannot reach reality. Put it this way. Kant was setting up a decree of divorce between knowledge and reality. The thinkers of the time accepted the sentence. Yes, these things that we used to put together we can see now, thank you, Kant, we can't. And yet, just as often happens in human divorces, the parties to the divorce could not live with the settlement. They were unhappy. 
Knowledge wants to reach reality. You just can't get rid of that. And so, the metaphysical idealist said, Kant, you're so right. We cannot get at reality through the front door of the senses and reason. But there has to be another way. A back door into reality. And thus I can find my partner again. Okay? A back door. Idealism posits a back door to the inner nature of reality. Positivism solved the problem another way. You're all upset and exercised that given Kant's wonderful philosophical breakthroughs and so on, your knowledge can no longer reach reality. Hang on before you get so upset. Don't you think Kant forgot to radically purge his own philosophy of the old metaphysics? Why, why, why has he got that mysterious, unknowable, unreachable, untouchable thing in itself out there? Who needs that? Why not just say that the appearances that we receive in our senses and in our thoughts are all the reality there is? There's nothing behind it. Huh? Then there's no more divorce. If we can know the appearances, we know all the reality there is. Appearances is my translation of the word phenomena. It's a better word, isn't it? Who wants to talk about phenomena? Anyway, looky here. Both are strategies to overcome Kant's divorce. And both will turn out to have a big effect on modernism. Now then, let's start with the backdoor strategy. Where was this backdoor? How could you get at the inner nature of reality if your mind and your senses couldn't do anything but cook it? Ah, Kant, said the idealist, you forgot. There is a chunk of reality which we are already inside. I don't have to get in. I am already inside my own conscious mind. Huh? So all I have to do is look around and see what I find in my conscious mind, and that will give me a clue to what all of reality is like on the inside. Now, one idealist philosopher different from another, in what clue he sees, I don't think there were any she's involved in that, anyway, whatever, what, what clue he picked on, okay? Um, some of you may have heard of Arthur Schopenhauer, another guy with a long name, huh? Arthur Schopenhauer was an idealist. He looked into himself. What is all reality like on the inside? What am I like on the inside at bottom? And Schopenhauer said, at bottom, 
I am a gob of will. That's the inner me, the will. Okay? Everything else is appearances. So he wrote a book called The World as Will and Appearances. Yeah. Everything on the inside was a gob of will. Behind whatever its appearances were, it was a little gob of will. And you came up to him and you said, Arthur, mein Freund, are you eigentlich serious here? Look at this podium. Are you telling me that this podium has a will? And he says, Jawohl. <laughs> really? A will? And he says, yes, I prove it to you. Try to put your hand through it. You see, it resists you. I'm not making this up. Okay? Well, I guess it's not so surprising a German looks for the inner clue and finds the will. A Frenchman, of course, is going to look inside himself for the inner clue, and guess what he's going to find? La liberté! Freedom! Yes, there were French idealists, too. And one of them, a fellow named Mendebiron, first name spelled like the state of Maine, looked inside himself and he decided that deep down he was a little gob of freedom. And that this is what every reality is on the inside. Underneath the appearances, everything is at bottom a little gob of freedom. And so, you went up to him. And you said, men, mon frère, êtes-vous sérieux? <laughs> this podium, you're saying that deep down somewhere it's free? And men de Biron said with a perfectly straight face, mais oui. It has just fallen into very fixed habits. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It would not be too great a distortion of Henri Bergson, another French idealist, nor would it be too great a distortion of Teilhard de Chardin, the notorious... Jesuit scientist slash theologian, to paraphrase them as saying that the inner reality of everything is life. Yes. Deep down, everything is a gob of life. Yes. Leave things alone to develop, and they will become more and more alive. How did the biosphere emerge out of dead chemistry, an inner dynamic in things, drives the chemical to ascend and become more complex and become the biological? This has got nothing to do with an empirical science. It's metaphysics. It's evolution turned into a crazy form of metaphysics. Now, 
the most important guy on the idealist side was Hegel. Georg Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel. He looked inside himself for the clue to what everything was like inside, at bottom. And the clue he came up with was the flow of ideas. Okay? He noticed the flow of thought in his mind. I think of something, I think, well, maybe not. I think of a corrective. I put together the original thought and the corrective. I reach a synthesis. He called that the dialectic of thought. So he came up with the idea, again, in all seriousness, that everything deep down inside is a little flow of thought, a little dialectic of thought. People asked him the same kind of questions I just illustrated. There was a guy in Germany who said, Hegel, if everything is a matter of thought, deduce this pen. And Hegel's answer was, I could, but I have more important things to do. <laughs> okay. So everything is a little self-unfolding thought, and the totality of things is the self-unfolding of an enormous cosmic thought. And that thought is God's thought. Yes. And so metaphysical idealism came up with a new understanding of the relation between God and the world. Once you found a back door into reality, you could get back to God. All right? If everything at deepest level inside was a stream of thought, who was thinking the thought? Huh? Thoughts live in a mind. Well, I'm not thinking whatever thought is producing this pen. We're yielding the phenomena of this pen. I'm not thinking that. I don't have the faintest idea what it would be. So it must be God's thought. So then the basic relation between God and the world is no longer cause to effect. It's no longer maker to thing made. It's rather the mind to the thoughts in it. God is where we all are. The unfolding of God is creation. God thinks himself through, and his thinking himself through yields the world. Uh huh. Pantheism, anyone? The whole world is God's thinking himself through. How about the idea that creation and incarnation are really the same event? God is just manifesting himself. As Christ became manifest in a human nature, so God becomes manifest in all the things of the world. From one end to the other of the 19th century, people struggled with pantheism. And Hegel was the main reason. How am I doing on time? Are you prepared to give me another 10 minutes? Sure? All right. Denial of creation, pantheism, are the results we tend to get over here. As well as a perfectly preposterous 
assumption. Let me ask you this. Do you think that at bottom everything is the same? Huh? No. See, you're a pluralist. You're a me this is by natural talent. You're a metaphysical pluralist. You think that things are at bottom different. At bottom, I am not a pen. I'm radically different from it. So where did this idea come from that at bottom everything is the same? It's all life. Or it's all freedom. Or it's all God. Or it's all reason. What is the basis for that idea? Answer, zero. The only support for the idea is the fact that these guys needed it. Okay? It never occurred to me that I, by entering into my own conscious mind, could figure out what the inner reality of a shellfish is. It just never occurred to me. It wouldn't occur to you. I'm not going to look around in my conscious mind and find the clue to the interior life of a table. No sensible person would think of that. But see, these guys had to have their back door. And their conscious mind was the only chunk of reality they knew they were inside. So it had to work. And the result is, you know, well, ridiculous world pictures. What else can you say? Let's go over to the positivist side. Oh, the positivists. They're not nearly as much fun to talk about. No crazy metaphysics of any kind, really. They sought to turn philosophy into a synthesis of all the sciences. How do we get to know the appearances? The appearances of the whole substance of empirical reality. How do we get to know empirical reality? Well, by science, said the positivists. We cannot get beyond the appearances of things. We cannot get beyond the phenomena. There's nothing to know behind them. The only thing we can do is study them scientifically. They said all genuine knowledge takes the form of an empirical science. That means theology's out, not science, not empirical. Philosophy is out, for that matter. <laughs> all useful knowledge, all genuine knowledge, takes the form of an empirical science, said these guys. The result, to begin with, was an invasion of scientific ambition all over the place where it hadn't been before. Think of this. The 19th century was the great century of historical writing. The greatest historian of the time, von Ranke, Leopold von Ranke, practically the inventor of modern historiography. And the historians believed that they had to be scientific. You had to describe things as they exactly originally were. No interpretation. Just the facts. 
That's historical science. Now, didn't I say that for a positivist, science had to be of empirical things? Could only have science of the appearances. Didn't I say that? I did. Well, then, how are you going to study the past? Its appearances have all gone bye-bye. Haven't they? What, do you think you're going to go visit Waterloo and still hear some hoofbeats? Oh, the past has gone bye-bye. Well, in default of the past events, history has to become the study of texts. Uh -huh. Written records from the past. The written records still exist. You can look at them. And from the written records, you put together your scientific account of how things originally were. Does everybody see how a positivist science of history is defeated by the invention of the telephone? I mean, you all live close enough to Washington to know about, you know, the backroom deals and all the ins and outs and so on and so on. How many important decisions in Washington never get into writing? It's all oral. Huh? Everybody see? This is why the biblical scholars at the end of the 19th century wouldn't believe anything in the scriptures unless they had extra-biblical documentation for it that they considered neutral and plausible. They would maintain that there simply wasn't the evidence to support our positions in faith. Okay. I should also tell you that the systematic positivists were relentless do-gooders. They believed in the malleability of man. So did Hegel over here, of course. For Hegel, man was continually changing, human nature was continually changing, as God's thought spun itself out. But for the positivists, too, man was malleable. And so they were engaged in projects like the Tamworth Reading Room. This was an initiative of Sir Robert Peel, an attempt to uplift the poor of London. Now, Peel thought that their uplift should not be done through Bible tracts or something like that, religion uh, yesterday's interest, but rather good scientific publications at the popular level. So you stock up a library with popular science magazine and you put it down in a slum. And the positivists really believed that human beings would improve. You and I know that all that will happen is that the library will become a place to drink and shoot up until it's trashed or burned down altogether. Oh dear, we're terrible cynics. <laughs> the positivists really believed, you know, that scientific literature would uplift mankind. Now then, I'm not quite at the end of the story of positivism yet. I told you 
that for a positivist, you absolutely could not get behind the appearances. And so they became critical of the sciences themselves. Look at how real sciences, real scientists, wrote books and tried to explain things. They had been talking ever since good old Newton about gravity, the force of gravity. Now let me ask you this. You have seen things fall, right? Have you ever seen gravity itself? No. It's an invisible. It's metaphysical. It isn't empirical. It must be cast out of science. You weren't allowed to appeal to any invisible force or nature of anything. By the time the positivists got done criticizing the sciences, they couldn't say much. A really correct science had to be nothing but a correlation of one visible thing with another. I ran into a perfect... I, I, I know I have to shut up, but I can't resist this story. When I was in graduate school, I ran into a perfect example of this. Remember that all of the social sciences were invented in the 19th century. One of the most famous, of course, is anthropology. Well, there was a graduate student where I was in school, and he had been working on the problem of why it seems that in Europe all of the free societies are on the western end of the peninsula. And as you go east, you know, it's oppression and tyrannies and czardom and yeah, what? Why is that? Now, he's a good positivist. He's got a problem. He's got to explain it. But he's got to explain it in terms of something observable. Now, I would have suggested maybe we should observe the various divisions of the Soviet army. But, no, uh, he didn't think that was deep enough. He said, I finally figured it out. He came into the dining room hall one day, just alive with enthusiasm for his new breakthrough. He said, what, what, what have you found out? He said, it's bread. It's what? Yeah, it's bread. Draw a line down the Elbow River. Everybody to the west of that line eats white bread. The people to the east all eat brown bread. White bread causes freedom. Brown bread causes tyranny. There it was. He was serious. Of course, the rest of us were all rolling on the floor. But that's positivism in action. All right, okay, okay. Next time we come together, because I am going to shut up now. Next time we come together, I'm going to talk to you about what happened to positivism when Darwinism came into science. Uh-huh. The whole, oh, never mind, I'm not going to say what happened, but it was big. All right, thank you for tonight. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dr. Marshner. All right, our usual break will now take place. Okay. I think I've heard that Rahner, uh, Karl Rahner, was Hegelian, and I'm wondering, is that true, and how did that come out in Rahner? What was that? Oh, 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 oh. 
You want a short answer to that? Well, I can start short anyway. Rahner was a genuine metaphysical idealist, okay, just like Hegel. But he disguised it as Thomism. He says that every reality at bottom is an act of being. Well, it doesn't sound so bad. I mean, everything there is, is, right? However, Rahner then goes on to say that being has an essence. In other words, to exist is to have a certain nature. What is that nature? This is at the beginning of his book on um, hearers of the word. He says, um, the essence of being is knowing and being known in inner unity. So it's like an inner Gelichtigkeit, a kind of lightedness, a primordial union of knower and known. <laughs> That's what it is to be. So does this podium manage to be? Yeah. So there is somehow in this podium an inner unity of knower and known? And Rahner says, yes, absolutely. I found it in one of his theological investigations, where he says, you know what matter is? Matter is frozen spirit. Right. Spirit is cognition and the intentional possession of an object. That's spirit. And matter is just frozen spirit. How do you like that? So he's a perfect example of this kind of 19th century idealist. He disguises his stuff as Thomism. And, watch this. Can you think of an instance in which the very being of a thing is its knowing? Thank you. In other words, the inner essence of all reality is to be God. Now, you and I are just deficient gods. So, Rahner's universe is a big uh, descending series of more and more imperfect gods, or manifestations of God, or bits and pieces of God. And uh, if, if luck holds with me next week, I'll be able to show you a 19th century system in which the same view was held. Okay? And guess what? That system was the official philosophy of the Jesuit order at Louvain in the 1860s. Plot thickens. Doctor, uh, can you explain which, aside from the Jesuits, which religious orders and Catholic schools of theology continue to absorb and promote these philosophies long after Pope St. Pius X condemned modernism? Oh. <laughs> well, there were very many. You didn't want me to mention the Jesuits. All right, well, that sort of cuts me short. But there was a, um, uh, a seminary in Lyon 
that uh, Henri de Lubac attended, for example. And he was exposed to this sort of thing there, quietly. A very important sort of idealist philosopher of uh, the end of the 19th century, middle, uh, up to the middle of the 20th century, was a guy named Maurice Blondel. I can't talk about what Blondel's position was. It was, it was, a, it was a twist on Kant, but whatever. Blondel's works were out of print, and they were being mimeographed and handed around the seminary to be read secretly at night. Again, Rahner was in the Jesuits. He was exposed to this kind of stuff. There were a couple of Dominicans who were into this kind of stuff. Not very many. But there was a, a, a neo-modernist movement at Le Sauchoir, which was the Dominican seminary in France. It's famous nowadays because I think right after World War II, the new seminary building was put up and it was designed by Le Corbusier, famous French architect. It's one of the worst looking built. Never mind. It's peculiar. But yeah, I mean, there were tendencies in many religious orders. The tendencies tended to come above ground after the middle of the 60s. All right. There were already some tendencies in the 60s. The Pope who saw this coming, saw this as a gathering danger again, was Pius XII, who put out this important cyclical called Humani Generis, in which he reproved a number of theologians. And uh, they had all been practitioners of what they called at the time the new theology, la nouvelle théologie. Now, not that everybody who used that title was bad. There were, some, there were some guys on the right in the Nouvelle Theology who turned out all right. But then there were a bunch of guys on the left. They turned out to be very bad news indeed. Pius IX made a move against them in 1951 in Humani Generis. Pius XII. Did I say ninth? No. I just, it's, sorry, forgive my hero worship. But, you know, uh, Pius. <laughs> Pius XII put out that encyclical in 1951. There's a very interesting report about this in a biographical memoir by um, Michael Novak. He was in seminary at one point. He was in the seminary in the United States, and he thought, oh, wow, that encyclical, that's, that settles things. Then he went over to, to Europe to study for a while. He was in Rome, and his professors over there said, oh, pfft. That encyclical, poof, is nothing. Soon the council will come, we get rid of that. So things were in the works. Enough. Don't want to spread any more conspiracy theories than we already have around here. Thank you very much, Dr. Merchner. You're welcome. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. 
and may the glory of Christ's church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.